So this morning, as we now move to our time in the Word, we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of 1 John, entitled Light and Love. And as you may recall, if you've been with us, the main thrust of John's letter is assurance, so that we can know that we know that we are, in fact, a Christian. And for those of you who weren't here last week, we looked at how one of the best ways for us as Christians to know for sure that we have come to know God is by the conduct of our lives. It's the evidence, not the merit, but the evidence of our relationship with God. Verses 3 through 6, John made plain that, it is, that if our lives are marked by obedience to God's word, then we can be, we can be assured that we are in fact with fellowship, in fellowship with him. But if not, if our lives are not marked by obedience, then we should rightly question whether our profession of faith is in fact authentic. And it all sounds well and good, but I don't know about you, but in a very practical sense, I left last week's message a little bit unsatisfied, a little bit confused. And the reason why I left unsatisfied is because although I know that the aim of my life is obedience, I can't help but deny the pervasiveness of sin in my life and it causes me to wonder, did I pass the test or not? Clearly there are some areas of my life where I'm doing pretty good, where obedience is obvious, and yet there's no hiding the fact that certain sins continue to show themselves week in and week out in my life. Why can't you grade on a curve, John? Why, why does it have to be so black and white? Thankfully, John recognizes the confusion that verses 3 to 6 might bring and that he realizes it's hard to definitively respond to the question, do I keep the commandments? And so he offers us this next section, verses 7 through 11, as a tool, as a practice test, if you will, to help us to determine the presence or lack thereof of obedience in our lives. So without further ado, let's look now at this final test that John gives us, starting in verse 7, this test that will hopefully determine for us what we desperately want to know. Are we really in fellowship with God? So I ask now, you, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you because it is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the dark, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is true. 
God, I pray you would speak to us through your word, that you would give me the courage to get out of your way so that we might be transformed by you. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Just got two points this morning. First, something old, something new, something borrowed and not blue. And secondly, blind spots. Something old, new, borrowed and not blue. And secondly, blind spots. Let's begin. If there was an award given for a lack of clarity in literature, John would probably be in the running for that award here in verses 7 and 8. Our text begins with this jumbled mess of ideas that appear to be in contradiction with one another. And yet what I want to argue this morning is that the truth that John is bringing to light here, pun intended, is absolutely vital for us to understand and apply. If we truly desire to walk in obedience to God's word, we have to understand what, God, what John is talking about here. So what is this truth that John is illuminating? It's actually not until way down in verse 9 that John finally reveals what he's getting at. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Remember the flow of John's argument. He's saying if we obey God's commandments, then we can know that we are in him. But how can we be sure that we obey? John gives us the key here in verses 8 and 9. He says, the surefire evidence of a life of obedience is love. It's pretty simple, actually. John says, if we love our brother, then we truly know God. But if we hate our brother, we don't know him. For those of you who are familiar with our denomination and it's passion for doctrine, I want to push even a little harder. To quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, it's not our intellectual opinion that proclaims truly what we are. We can be perfectly orthodox but unloving. Orthodoxy is of no value to you if you do not love your brother. Really the message of 1 Corinthians 13. John's point is crystal clear here. If you aren't sure whether or not there's obedience present in your life, don't look to your doctrine, but rather be assured that your love for brother is the clearest picture of your obedience. And before we go any further, we need to first be clear about who is our brother. Who is it that John is referring to that we should love or there should be evidence of love? context is key here. Normally in scripture when the word brother is used it signifies a fellow believer. Clearly there's a gender bias here that was pervasive in the time of John's writing but for all intended purposes one should interpret brother in the Bible as fellow Christian regardless of gender. However here in 1 John this word is a little bit more nuanced than that. If you can remember from week one, Daniel mentioned the spiritual climate in which this letter was being written. You see, at the time of John's writing, a rogue group had formed inside the church. And this 
group began to teach things that were contrary to the gospel, teaching that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he was not the Son of God, that we did not need his death for the forgiveness of our sins. And as a result of these contradicting beliefs, this renegade group was compelled to secede from the church. They felt the need to leave. And yet these secessionists, for lack of a better term, were not content just to go away, but rather they commissioned a group of preachers to go back into the church and try to propagate their new beliefs. And what's important here when we understand the history is that in the midst of all this chaos, these secessionists continue to call themselves Christians. And it's in light of this historical context that this word brother is to be understood. Because although it may not be super clear here, what we will clearly see later in the letter is that the secessionists were the brothers that John was referring to. The ones that he was calling the church to love. So to drive this point home, what John is saying is that we can know that we are Christian by the love that we have, not for your best buddy in church, but rather for the brother or the sister who drives you crazy. The brother or sister who profoundly disagrees with you. The brother or sister who has treated you badly who has spoken ill of you, who has ignored you, or even blatantly and intentionally hurt you. How do we do that? Now, before you throw in the towel, I want you to look with me back at verse 7, at this jumbled mess of ideas to see if we can figure out how to live out this this calling, this truth. Again, the, the truth that John is commending is love, specifically love, for fellow Christians, even for those that appear impossible to love. I know that we don't have any of those here, but I've heard they exist, and that's who John's talking about. It's here in verse 7 and 8 that John gives us the secret for how to do it. The secret is revealed in this truth that is old, new, borrowed, and, and not blue. In what ways is this truth old? That's how John begins he, he wants us first to recognize that this truth has some gray hair on it, that it's been here from the beginning. And he's actually right on. If we think about our understanding of the Scriptures, we can look all the way back to the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, and, and we have this very command to love spelled out for us. Chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The very next line is, I am the Lord, which is God's way of saying, listen up. This is important. Love for neighbor is important. But not only is this commandment old, it's also borrowed. John wants us to know that this isn't his idea. He's not making this up. Verse 7, he says, The old commandment is the word that you have heard. If we remember from chapter 1, many of these people that John is writing to, they were eyewitnesses. They had actually met Jesus. They had actually heard him teach. They were present when he said things like this coming from John's gospel, chapter 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love for one another. John's point is clear. This call to love, it's not novel. It's not new. But rather, it's been passed down through the prophets and even Jesus himself. That we understand. But then comes verse 8, and all kinds of confusion settles in. John says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him 
and in you. What in the world is John talking about? How can this commandment be both old and new? And as is often the case, the most difficult verse in our section is the most important. So critical that we understand what God is getting at. John is arguing that this commandment is new and that not that the content of the commandment has changed. The call is still to love our brother, but our ability to keep the commandment has changed. But where does this newfound ability come from? The text says it comes from the fact that that which is true in him, in Jesus, is also true in us. Church, this is such important foundational gospel truth. What John is saying is that Jesus, he perfectly obeyed all the commandments. It was true in him, which means he loved perfectly. He loved flawlessly. He loved completely without error. So what, pastor? What does that have to do with you and me? Well, the point is what the rest of the verse says is that this one who loves perfectly is in you. This idea of union with Christ is being expanded upon, blown up in our face right here, that that we are united to Christ and the Holy Spirit is in us and that changes everything. It means that when we obey, we now obey in Christ's strength. When we love, we now love in his love. It's his power, not ours, that's at work in us. I think there's a beautiful illustration of what this looks like found in the circus of old. It's not how the circus looks anymore, but if you remember the hallmark of the circus used to be the giant elephants. And Peter took care of that, which is probably a good thing. But if you remember when you were a child, maybe there were these massive elephants that paraded around the ring. And what's interesting about the elephants is that the ways that they were trained, the ways that the trainers harnessed this great power is they would teach them at a very young age that they are very weak. So when the elephant was a baby, they would tie the elephant to a stake. And the elephant would learn that it was powerless to get out of this constraint. That it did not have the ability to pull the stake out of the ground. And so the elephant became convinced that he or she was weak. And, and the problem was that elephants were, are not that intelligent. And as they grew over time, they never realized that they actually now had the power, with very little effort, to snatch the stake out of the ground. That they were not in fact, constrained by this rope, by this stake. Are we not the elephant? No doubt there is a time when we could not love well, when we were bound by the constraints of sin, but the truth is that now we are in Christ. We are strong as the mighty elephant, and yet so often we act like that baby elephant, believing that our sin is too strong for us that we don't have the power, forgetting that the power of the Holy Spirit resides in us, that with his power we can snatch that stake right out of the ground. That's what the doctrine of union with Christ empowers us to do. It makes us aware that we are mighty in him and that we have the ability to love well. The last part of verse 8 is, is important for us as we're trying to live this out. It's especially important for us who live in a Western world, who can't help but look at the Bible through this individualistic lens. We think that it's always just about me. And John is here helping us see the greater narrative that's at play. 
the story that is far bigger than you and me. He says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John's taking a step back and helping us to see a picture of the cosmos, of, of what's going on in the world around us. He's reminding us that God is not work, at work just in you and I, but in all of creation. He's making all things new. He's reminding us of how creation was perfect in the beginning. There was no darkness at all, but then sin entered the world, Genesis 3, and the darkness flooded the earth. But there's hope. He's reminding us of that hope that redemption has begun. Listen to how this is described in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then in chapter 8, for those of us who are a little slow like me, Jesus makes it plain. He says, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The fact that Jesus has come, the light has come, changes everything. Not just you and me, but it's changing the whole world. Aslan is on the move. All of creation is being made new. And yet, when we read verse 8, it's clear that although the darkness is passing away, it isn't gone yet. And we all know that to be true. You don't need to be convinced that there is darkness still pervasive in this world. The way that theologians describe this overlap, if you will, is they talk about the already and the not yet. And this is what this text is getting at. The fact that Jesus has already become. He's already come and the true light is already shining. And that is the already that should cause us to have great hope. There's evidence of redemption all around us and in us. However, the not yet is hard to deny. There continues to be brokenness around us and in us. This world is not as it should be. The point of verse verse 8 here is that we need to be careful not to focus too much on the not yet. The hope for us as believers is to lean into the already, to lean into the reality that the light is shining and the light is in you and me. And that's what gives us hope and strength to love well. So I want to shift now to practical application, blind spots. I want to talk about how we live into this redemption that is happening all around us. Look with me now at verse 11. John says, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. While I was in college, I spent a summer at one of those wilderness programs out in Utah. I guess you could say that I was sent to this program. I I didn't really volunteer, but it's a different sermon. And it was one of those programs that had this revolving entry. You could come in at any time, and you just jumped in with the group that was there. And it was really rigid. When we got there, you gave them all your personal belongings, and they issued you a set of clothes. That was it. Two pairs of underwear, two shirts, a pair of shorts, a pair of pants. And they drove you off 50 miles out into the woods and dropped you off with the rest of the group. I'll never forget the moment when I first joined the group. The smell was horrendous. It was awful. If you can imagine what a group of about 10 young men with two pairs of underwear smells like, it was worse than what you're imagining. It's pretty terrible. But the funny thing is that after a day or two, 
I stopped smelling the guys. It wasn't that they finally shipped deodorant out to us so that we wouldn't stink so bad, but, but rather I got accustomed to the body odor. My nose no longer recognized it. I went nose blind. Church, I, I wonder, I fear that we may have gone hate blind. I fear that we've gotten so accustomed to hatred that we no longer recognize it in ourselves. To use the words of John, that we're walking in darkness and we don't even know it because the darkness has blinded us. This morning I want to spend a moment pointing out some blind spots that are all true of me, confession, and and may or may not be true of you. Before I do this, I want you to consider what's John saying in verse 11. Consider that it may actually be very difficult for you to recognize that these things are true of your life. You may be blind. How how do you overcome a blind spot when you're driving a car? You use the rearview mirror, right? The mirror helps you to see what you couldn't otherwise see on your own. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, will you be my rearview mirror? I want you to really, do, the white people are so uncomfortable right now. I want you to turn to your neighbor. He's like, you can't tell me to talk to a stranger. Yeah, I do. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, will you be my rearview mirror? Church, if, if, if you really want to love well, you're going to have to invite other people into your life to be your rearview mirror to point out things which you are blind to, and that's really scary, isn't it? Because if we're honest, most of us, we just don't really want to know. We really don't. And yet what 1 John reveals is that the core of our identity as Christians is love for one another. Therefore, to be a Christian is necessarily to grow in love for one another. So what ways are we walking in darkness, and what ways has hatred blinded us from seeing the lack of love in our midst. I want to give you this as not an exhaustive list, but rather the list that the Holy Spirit gave me this week. The first area that I think is is pervasive is judgment. I think that hatred reveals itself in our lives through judgment, which is always rooted in pride. We believe, or I, I believe, that I am better than those around me, and that belief fuels my hatred. The problem with this form of hatred is that it happens inside of us and our thoughts and our feelings. And therefore, so many of us feel the freedom to let this form of hatred run wild. How do you know if this hatred is in you? Here's a few questions you can ask. Do you find joy at times when others fail? Do you feel less guilty about your own sin because you see more sin in others? When you hear a convicting sermon or read a challenging passage do you more often than not begin to think about who really needs to hear this message or who really needs to read this scripture how much better would we all be if we approach the word if we approach Sunday morning for ourselves and not for others do you feel contempt for those who make the same mistakes over and over again do you expect excellence of those around you and put up with nothing less Lastly, do you get defensive when others confront you? 
when a brother or sister acts as your rearview mirror and points out ways that you are not loving well, do you listen and seek to apply that truth or do you blast them for saying such things? Judgment is a powerful form of hatred that is present in all of us. And it chains us down like the elephant's stake. We need to repent of this hatred and ask that the light that is shining in us empower us to love better. I want to ask you, who have you judged in this room? What judgment do you need to repent of right now? What would it look like to love that person rather than judge them? Now, unfortunately, there's other hatred present as well. This hatred flows out of our judgment, and we call it slander. It's when we speak our judgment. Last week at General Assembly for our denomination, the gathering of all the churches of the PCA, our denomination, Reverend Joe Novenson called for us as a denomination to come together. And the lack of oneness, he pointed out, was the way that we disagree with one another, the way that we talk about each other. And what Joe was primarily referring to is the vitriol that we spew all over the internet through social media. There's not a more fitting text in the Bible that demands that we stop it than 1 John. Remember the context in which John is writing. There are these so-called Christians that are trying to destroy the church, to pick off members of these congregations In today's day and age, we would be lighting these so-called Christians up all over Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, tearing them up. Church, I don't care. I don't care who the people in your life voted for, what their stance is on immigration or abortion or homosexuality or gender equality or education style, or you fill in the blank. As Christians, we must not slander. We have to stop it. We need to get off our self-righteous soapboxes and stop posting this junk. It's not love, it's hatred. In Reverend Nobudson's sermon, he referenced a letter written in 1544 to John Calvin, in many ways the father of Presbyterian Church. And in this letter, Calvin was being informed by a friend that Martin Luther has broken fierce invective against you. I had to look up that word. Invective is highly insulting language. Someone is telling Calvin that Luther is shredding you on Instagram, Twitter. This is Calvin's response. I hear that Luther has at last broken out in fierce invective, not so much against you as against the whole of us, But I do most seriously want to ask you to consider how eminent a man Luther is and the excellent endowments he is gifted with, his strength of mind and resolute constancy, with what great skill and efficiency and power of doctrinal statement he has hitherto devoted his whole energy to overthrowing the reign of Antichrist, at the same time to diffusing far and near the doctrine of salvation." I have often been accustomed to declare that even though he were to call me a devil, I should nonetheless still hold him in such honor that I must acknowledge him to be an illustrious servant of God. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to love your brother. 
And yet how commonplace and acceptable has slander become in our society, in the church even. Who have you slandered in this room? Who have you spoken out against? Unlike judgment that happens in our heart, slander needs to be repented of out loud. Is there someone here that you need to make amends with because of your harsh speech? Not only are judgment and slander evidences of our hatred, but lastly, our silence reveals our hatred. How in the world could our silence be construed as hatred, you might ask? Remember what Jesus said before. He was, Jesus was not so concerned necessarily about just the individual, but rather Jesus was focused on a new community. That's what the church is, a new community, a community that consists of people loving one another fully. And church, there's no hope for that new community if we stay silent. Part of our loving our brother is to help him or her see their blind spots. Some of you have been hurt by someone in this room, and you need to speak up. You need to let them know how they've hurt you. Some of you have been hurt by me, by Pastor Daniel, and we want to know. I want you to speak up so that we can reconcile. We have no hope for creating a loving community if we continue to stay silent. We have to go to one another, speak to each other in love. And I I think it's important to note that we should do this with permission. I've made that mistake many times. We don't go speaking to people's lives unless we've been invited. And I hope that you will invite one another. And it's clear that we need to do this with the other's heart and mind. We don't go speaking to someone's life so that our life will be more comfortable. If so-and-so would stop doing this, I would be really happy. Make my life easier. That's not why we do it. We do it out of genuine concern and love for the other person. It's not easy. But if we as a church could begin to be rearview mirrors for one another, I can't even fathom how much more love would exist in this community? What do you say? You with me? Amen? Okay. I want to conclude by looking at how this whole thing is made possible and how we go from being ones who were once blind, but now we see. And I think the answer is found in the first verse of our text. Look again at verse 7. John begins this section with the Greek word agapetoi, coming from a Greek word you might be familiar with, agape, meaning love. And the most literal definition of agapetoi is loved one, one who is the recipient of love. And, and in some sense, John is narrowing his audience here. The letter is only for loved ones. That's who I'm writing to, he says, and And the reason that John begins here is because he knows that the only way the blind will see, the only way the haters will become lovers is by the experience of love from another. As I was thinking about this truth and the freedom and power that comes from being loved, I was reminded of a book that I read years ago called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. In the book, Rivers retells the story of the Old Testament book of Hosea, but this time set in America and the 1850s. And just like in the book of Hosea, 
The main character of the story is a man named Michael Hosea who is called by God to marry a harlot. And Rivers paints a picture of this man, Michael, pursuing this woman, Angel, who in turn keeps running away and returning to her life of infidelity time and time again. And in pride, Angel, she refuses to receive Michael's love, to be loved. But over time, Michael's unrelenting pursuit begins to tear down Angel's pride. And this is how Rivers describes that. She says, He, Michael, had been like the sea, sometimes storm-cast with waves crashing against the cliff wall. Other times he was like steady, lapping surf. Always he'd been like the tide, washing her shore, reshaping her coastline. That's what God does for us. He tears down our pride like a consistent tide with his unrelenting, unending love. And when Angel, the unlovable, finally experiences the love of another, when she becomes an agapetoi, a loved one, it changes her. It transforms her. Spoiler alert as to where we're going in 1 John chapter 4. You know, we love because he first loved us. That's what's happening here. Angel is empowered to love in a whole new way because of the love of her husband. Church, the hope for us to overcome our blindness and to live well and to love well is to recognize that we are angel. We are the unlovable ones, and yet, like Michael Hosea, God has pursued us in spite of our blatant and continued unfaithfulness. And when that penny drops, we become powerless to hatred. Because how can I judge someone else when I know that I am just as sinful as they are? How can I slander someone when I know I'm no greater than them? How can I be silent when I know that God has refused to remain silent for me? To be loved with no strings attached produces a profound empathy. Empathy that shapes the way we interact with one another. That's what it looks like to have our eyes opened. Church, I hope and pray that each of us may be honest about the hatred in us and that we might repent of that hatred and be compelled by God's love towards us and empowered by his spirit in us to rip up that stake and love the brothers and sisters that Christ has placed in our life, to love with the love of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help drive this truth into my heart and the heart of each and every person here. I truly cannot fathom what would happen in this church if this kind of love took root. If through our experience of your love and through the power of your spirit we began to love this way, I think Durham would never be the same. God, I thank you and praise you for your word, and I pray that it would become more and more true of each of us each and every day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.